0: Romans chapter 4, the text that I had planned to uh, preach was through verse 12 of Romans 4, and then if you have your outline uh, in your bulletins in front of you, you'll see that there's you know three, three points there for the, for the message from Romans 4, uh, 1 through 12, but as I prepared the message, I realized I kind of bit off a little bit more than I could chew, so we're just going to go through verses 1 through 8. And the first two points of that, of that sermon. So that's our plan for this morning. And I think you'll be grateful that I decided to end it at, at verse 8. But Romans 4, 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come before you now, seeking your help to listen, to hear, to meditate on your words this morning, Lord, I pray that you truly would bless this time that we have together and help us. Father, we need to be convinced that we do not have to work to gain our acceptance before you that our works cannot earn any merit from you. But you have been gracious to us in sending your Son. So, it help us, convince us, so work in our hearts that we would have confidence in what your Word says, that if we believe you, believe your Word about Christ, that we would be counted as righteous. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I mentioned this before, but uh, I'm very grateful to have grown up in a church a lot like this one. Uh, When I was a child, my Sunday mornings would start with me sitting on a chair in the fellowship hall in our church basement. And at the front of the room would be a piano and a podium with a, 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 tr- a tripod stand next to the podium that would hold these large paper sheets with uh, words for our Sunday school songs written on them. and uh, We would all be organized in that room by grade level. The preschoolers would sit on little uh, bright-colored chairs all the way up front, and then each row back from the preschoolers would be a different Sunday school class grade level. Uh, The transition from the little plastic colored chairs to the regular metal folding chairs would happen in the third grade. And man, I remember that September when I finally entered the third grade and could graduate up from those little plastic colored chairs to the adult metal folding chairs. I felt so grown up uh, that, uh, that fall. Now, many of the songs that we, we would sing would be about Bible characters. Uh, I love the song about David and his and his sling. Uh, there's a song about Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho. And then, of course, there was the song that uh, Father Abraham had his many sons that my children uh, demanded that I get up here and sing, but I'm not going to do. Um, you know those songs well. It's probably in your head uh, even now, um, Those songs, though, did actually serve a greater purpose than just getting some of the wiggles out of the the kids uh, prior to getting into their classrooms for Sunday school class. Those songs were teaching us things. Every song teaches something. And those songs were teaching us about God, about his word, and his people. One of the lessons uh, those songs taught us, especially the Father Abraham song, was that we had a real connection to those people, to those characters in the songs, which, of course, was kind of a hard thing for me to believe. I mean, these were heroes, right? They did all these great things that we sing about. They had these amazing experiences with God. How could it be possible for me to have any connection at all with them? And yet, the main message of the song Father Abraham, the main message that that, that that song taught us was that not only did we have a connection with him, but that could, we could very well be his children. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. How could I and the rest of the knuckleheads in my class have a family connection with Abraham. Father Abraham. Especially since we weren't even Jewish. How could I also have a connection with the other heroes of the Bible that we would sing about? Like like King David. Well, I learned that it was not because of any great work that I could do or any amazing experience that I could have. What I learned in my Sensual classes, in that basement of the church in Albert City, Iowa, was that if I trusted God like Abraham trusted God, then God would bless me like he blessed Abraham. That I could be a friend of God like Abraham was a friend of God, the maker of the heavens and the earth. If I had faith then I could truly be one of Abraham's sons. What we're being shown here this morning in Romans 4 is that God has dealt with his people in much the same way throughout human history. Abraham is known as the patriarch or the father of the Jewish people. But more than that, Paul shows us here that he is the father of a much greater and larger group of people. That is, the people of faith all those who have come to put their trust in God's gospel. Therefore, you and I and even our children can have a a direct connection with Abraham if we have faith in the Lord and in the message of the gospel. The way Abraham was saved is no different than the way King David was saved, which is no different from the way Paul was saved, which is no different from the way you and I and our children can be saved today. That is by faith in Christ alone. And that's what Paul showing us here in our passage from Romans 4, 1 through 8. So the main theme is that God has always justified sinners by faith alone. One big, big question that I had when I was old enough to understand the way of salvation was, if we must have faith in Jesus in order to be saved, then how were the people saved who all lived before Jesus came? How were Abraham and Moses and David and Daniel and all those, how were they saved? How did they get into heaven? How could they put their faith in someone who hadn't even been born when they all died? Now, that may may have been a question that Paul's fellow fellow Jews had, as well as the young believers in the church of Rome had as well, for it must have seemed to all of them that Paul was teaching something new when he's teaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ here. A new way to be made right with God. And if it was a new way to be made right with God, then it couldn't possibly be true since They had a long record of God's dealings with his people that didn't include anything about Jesus. Or so they thought. So Paul looks back in the scriptures of what we now call the Old Testament and he proves his teaching that the only way to be justified before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we'll work through these these verses together here in chapter 4 by first seeing that the patriarch Abraham was credited as righteous before God by his faith. That's in verses 1 through 3. And then we'll see how David was credited as righteous before God by his faith. That's in verses 4 through 8. So first Abraham was credited by was credited as righteous be, be before God by his faith verses 1 through 3. Now, in the previous verses in chapter 3, the apostle Paul argued that no one is justified before God by their works or By their obedience to the law. Rather, the Lord has revealed through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus that he has accomplished all that is necessary for our justification before God. So then we must receive it as a gift only by faith, by trusting in Christ without looking to anything else. Like, like jumping out of an airplane with only one thing in your backpack, that is that one parachute that you are putting all of your trust in to save you from a terrifying death. We are to trust in Christ alone to save us from being condemned by God for our sins and instead be counted as righteous before him. So Paul goes to the, the scriptures to show examples of this by focusing on some of the most honored and well-respected examples of those who are considered to be righteous by the Jews, Abraham and then David. And so he begins with Abraham here in verses 1 through 3. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was probably the most prominent example in all of Jewish history to use as someone who was believed to be a righteous man before God. Uh, James notes that Abraham was called a friend of God by King Josaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. In fact, within some of the ancient rabbinic writings of the Jews, Abraham was given somewhat of a nickname. Um, The rabbis in those writings affectionately called Abraham, um, in in Hebrew it it would would be Zerover Hamor, Zerover Hamor, which translated means a pouch of myrrh, a pouch of myrrh. Now if you remember from the Christmas story, myrrh was one of the gifts of the Magi. Uh, that they brought to Jesus, it was considered the most excellent of all the spices. So therefore by calling Abraham a pouch of myrrh, Abraham was considered to be the most excellent of all the righteous men. So Paul is basically saying here, using him as an example, if anyone, if anyone could have been justified by his works, surely it's Abraham, called by God to leave his home and his family and go to the land of Canaan, the the land that the Lord would would show him. Check. He obeyed that. The man that God chose to bless and bring forth the nation of Israel through his descendants. And then when when God himself visited um, uh, him to reassure him of, of the promises he made to him, how did Abraham respond then? Well, he welcomed the Lord and provided the Lord with generous hospitality when the Lord was going to judge the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah who did the Lord discuss his plans with that's right it was Abraham and of course how did Abraham do when God tested his devotion and his obedience by seeing if he'd be willing to sacrifice his son Isaac and humbly submit to God's authority over him yes Yes, Abraham even passed that test. If there is anyone who had something to boast about regarding righteousness, it was Abraham. If our righteousness before God could be based on our works, then more than anyone, Abraham would have gained it. But Paul asks the most foundational question in regards to determining what is... Uh, what the teaching is true, and what is in error here in verse 3. It's a question that should be on our lips whenever we get into theological debates or discussions. Look there in verse 3, what's the question? For what does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? Where did Paul look for authoritative teaching? Where did Paul go to find answers to the deepest and most significant questions that he or his people had? He didn't ask, what is my opinion? He didn't say, well, what do the scribes say? He didn't say, well, let's let's go to the priests. Let's talk to them and see what they think. He says, what does the Bible say? For what does the Scripture say? In the history of the Evangelical Free Church, this was a rallying cry of the founders of the Free Church movement. Where stands it written? They would ask. It's, it should still be on our minds and hearts today in the midst of a society that is almost daily changing what it believes to be right and good and acceptable. When, when we are faced with challenges to our beliefs, when, when we must decide the way forward on a controversial matter. We must not say, what is my preference? What do I think about this? Or, what does my church or denomination teach regarding this? Nor should we say, well, what does my favorite internet pastor or radio Bible teacher say about this? The place where we must begin, the place where we can all begin, is what does the Scripture say? Let's look at the, at the Bible. What does the Bible say about this? Paul then quotes from, from the Scriptures, from uh, Genesis 15, verse 6 to be exact, there in verse 3. It's a direct quote. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In the context of uh, the passage from Genesis 15, the word of the Lord has come to Abraham in a vision. The Lord had spoken to Abraham before this, of course, promising Abraham many descendants, uh, promise, promising Abraham blessing, and that through Abraham's family line, all the families of the earth would one day be blessed. That's in Genesis 12 1 through 3. So, this was an amazing promise because Abraham's wife, Sarah, had been unable to bear children. She had never been pregnant, and now she was well beyond the childbearing age, and it's been several years since the Lord had made that promise to Abraham. Uh, when, When we come to chapter 15 of Genesis, and there was still no sign of anything changing for them, Sarah was not pregnant. They were both just getting older, and it was becoming less and less likely that it would ever happen for them. And then the word of the Lord comes once again to Abraham and tells him to look up at the sky. Look up at the sky in the middle of the night, which in the land of ancient Canaan had to be an incredible sight. And he looks up at the sky. It's a clear night. He sees the sky full of stars. And the Lord told him, for as many stars as he would be able to count in the sky so shall your offspring be. That was the word of the Lord to Abraham. So shall your offspring be. The next thing we are told in the scripture is, is, is what we read here in verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. He trusted God. He trusted in his word, what he had said. He believed his promise and believed that God was able to fulfill that promise. And the Lord counted or then credited or reckoned Abraham's faith to him as righteousness. It is tax season, and by using this word here, it is as if the Lord got out his ledger. And under Abraham's account, he marked righteous. From then on, before the Lord, Abraham would always be considered righteous. Not because of any work he had done. Not because of uh, anything that he could accomplish for the Lord. Only on account of his faith. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So justification is by faith alone, apart from works of the law. Now you might argue, or a devoted Jew might might argue with with Paul here, but but that was long ago. That was long before the law was even given. Once God gives the law, God would then count obedience to the law as righteousness before him. Once the law is, is given to Moses, and Moses then gives it, to, gives it to the people, and they have the law, they hear the law now. God will count righteous those who obey the law, who do the works of the law. That, w- that would be the argument. So then Paul will address that next by bringing up another righteous example who came after the law was given, many years after the law was given. That's, that's David. So verses 4 through 8 David was credited as righteous before God by his faith. So verses 4 through 8 Now to the one who works, his wages are not, not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Verses 4 and 5, Paul is making a, a clear distinction between works and faith as the instrument for our justification. If one works, Paul says, well, he'll receive a wage for his labor. He has earned it. That's why he was doing the work. His, His goal is to receive the benefit. And the only way to receive the benefit is to work for it. Once he's done the work, he will receive the wage that is his due. There's a difference then between a wage and a gift. A gift is not something you earn. A gift is something you just receive. It's given to you. And you receive it by opening up your hands, by by, by trusting in the goodness of the of, of, of the giver and receiving that gift a wage however is earned by labor by work I can't remember uh, how many years ago it was now but it was a happy summer for me when my boys uh, took over mowing our yard for us um, since since the very beginning uh, we, we, we've paid them a wage for their work in, in, in mowing the yard and Since uh, this began, I've noticed two things. First, it's really not that hard to get them to do the work. They actually often ask if if they can mow before it's ready to mow. One of them uh, just asked me this week when I thought they could start mowing the lawn again. The second thing is even on the days when I've tried to help them, they get upset with me. They don't want my help. They get upset if I do any of the work for them. Or if they've been gone to camp or gone somewhere and I mow the yard when they're not there, oh, they come back and they are unhappy with their dad for doing the work for them. And once they've, they've, they've done the work, well, they know they know they deserve their wage. They won't let me forget to pay them. They know that I'm an old man and I sometimes might forget something. They, they write it down. And they make sure that I'm aware, if I've not yet paid them, their rage. It's something that they know they've earned, that they deserve it. But there has been a few times when something has happened to the mower, uh, or much more often to the trimmer, which prevented them from doing the work. The equipment broke down, and they didn't know how to fix it, so rather than trying to do something that they knew they could never do for themselves, they instead came to their dad... And asked their dad for help. Then they stood back, sometimes they even just went inside the house and took a break, had a had had a cold drink and sat down while I did the work for them to get the mower or get the trimmer running again. And sometimes I would I would kid them, you know, about, about charging them for my services. But of course they just smile and laugh at me and, and get on with the work. I didn't have to I didn't have to help them. I did the work for them as a gift because I love them and I knew they couldn't do it for themselves no matter how hard or how long they worked at it and that is like what Paul is describing here for us in verse 5 we know what it means to earn a wage for the work that we do we receive something we deserve but if we are ungodly sinners which we learn back in chapter 3, that we all are, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, in verse 23. Well then, as Paul will tell us in chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of our sins, the wages that our sins have earned for us, is death. It's condemnation. It's everlasting torment in hell. That's what we deserve. That's what our works have earned for us. So, we are in great trouble and we are helpless to face God because of our sin. So, so what are we to do about that? We are to do what my sons have done when they know that they can't work to make things right for themselves. We ask for help. We know that the job is too big for us, that, that no matter how hard or how long, We worked, we we would never make ourselves right with God. So instead, we seek the mercy of God. And we trust that he has done the work for us already. Because it is what his word has said to us. It is the message of the gospel. When you trust him who justifies the ungodly, your faith is counted or credited to you as righteousness before God. It's not by work. It's, it's, it's not by obedience. It's by trusting that, that, that justifies us before God, by believing God, by trusting in what He has said regarding Christ. Verse then turns our attention, I'm sorry, verse six then turns our attention to another Old Testament hero to, to King David, who I also used to sing about in Sunday school. He was also one of the most admired historical figures for the Jews, for every king after him was compared to him in regard to their righteousness. He lived well after the giving of the law, and so if, if justification was by doing the works of the law, well then surely that would be the only way that David could, point, could be justified before God. So, so how then did David do at obeying that law? How did David do? Does the story of David point us to depending upon our works of obedience to make us right with God? Is that what his story says? If we we look at the story of David, will that lead us to, to believe, oh yeah, you become righteous by simply obeying the law? Listen again to David's profession of his faith in verses 7 through 8, which is a direct quote, again, from the Scriptures, from Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Paul describes David before this as one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So he is just like Abraham. He has been counted righteous before God through his belief, through his faith, apart from works. Verse 7 through 8 say, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. That is, happy, joyful are those whose lawless deeds have been canceled, have been sent away, they've been forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed, happy, joyful is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David experienced this. David wrote this psalm after his terrible sins when he was guilty of Covetousness, of adultery, of deception, of murder, of betrayal, of stealing. He broke all the Ten Commandments in that terrible matter with the wife of Uriah. But When the prophet Nathan confronted him about his sin, what did David do? How did David respond? Was David hoping that you know, all the times he obeyed the law before this maybe would outnumber the sins he had just committed? You know, Figure that out? Well, I have obeyed the law quite a bit. Maybe you know, they would just outnumber those, those, those sins. Did, 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 he, did he try to make up for his sins by committing to be more obedient than ever before? Oh, oh, Nathan, you need to help me be more obedient, Lord. Uh, Lord, just I, I commit to you from now on, I will never look at another woman lustfully ever again. I will never lie. I will never do this. I will never do that. Is that how Abram or how, how how David responded to being confronted with this sin? No, he knew he was condemned before God. He knew he was condemned. He admitted that the only thing that he deserved was death. He knew it. He knew there was nothing he could do to make it right. Nothing. And so he repented, and he cast himself on the mercy of God, and what did Nathan say that God did for him? 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. And that is simply stunning. It's stunning. That should shock each one of us, that God would do such a thing as that, that the Lord would justify the wicked, the ungodly, not on account of any work he had done, but rather that he did not work but believed him who justified the ungodly. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. My friends, before you can be forgiven of your sins, before you can be counted righteous before God and have salvation, you must know something about yourself. You must be convinced, like David That you are a sinner. That you are guilty. That you are wicked. That you deserve to be condemned to hell for your sins. For it says here, verse five. God only justifies the ungodly. God only. God only justifies the wicked. Just like Jesus said in in the Gospels, he he said that that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You will never repent until you know that you are a sinner. If you think you're righteous, well, you'll never repent. You'll never confess. You'll you'll never believe in the one who justifies the wicked because you're like, I don't need it. I'm fine without that. I don't need to be, to, be, to be justified. I'm just fine on my own cuz I do this, I do that, I haven't done this, therefore God is happy with me. Rather than trusting what he said, believing what he said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, including you. You will never repent until you know that you are a sinner. You cannot be saved until you know that there is nothing you can do to be righteous before God. That the only hope that you have is to rely upon his mercy. Rely upon his grace and hope that he will give you grace because of what Christ came to do for you. Then you will rejoice along with David. You will know this joy that he speaks of here and hopefully you will not be afraid to express that joy once in a while. You know, not not just here on Sunday mornings. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Isaac Watts expresses expresses for us what our response ought to be when we have come to trust him who justifies the ungodly, knowing that without his grace we would be doomed. He says in this great hymn, No more, my God, I boast no more of all the duties or the works I have done. I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. Now for the love I bear his name. What, has, what was my gain I count but loss. My former pride I call my shame and nail my glory to his cross. The best obedience of my hands does not appear before thy throne, but faith can answer thy demands by pleading what my Lord has done. That's the gospel, friends. That's what we're about to remember and recognize with the Lord's table.